coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. So President Bush calls the house and he said, hey, um, we're coming into town, Margaret Thatcher and I, in, you know, two weeks and we're going to have this little conference and we're going to have dinner down at the ranch and we'd like to have you guys join us. And he said, of course, we'd love to join you. Calls back five minutes later. He said, what are you guys doing for the weekend? I said, well, what do you got? What do you want to do? He said, how about jumping on Air Force One and flying back to Washington? We'll jump on the helicopter and go to Camp David for the weekend. That was one of the great stories we dig into today on the show. Friend of the president, Olympic athlete, and fly fishing superstar, Andy Mill, today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. One easy way to support this podcast is to click over through the link uh, to our sponsors' websites and let them know that uh, you came uh, from this podcast. Thanks in advance if you had a chance to do that or purchase any of the products over there. Trestle designs, engineers, and manufactures industry-leading products and premium apparel. From their patented game-changing telescopic fly rod carrier and their specialized waterproof cases and fly boxes to the magnetic nipper system that's revolutionizing the way people snip their line. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash trestle right now. That's T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Wetflyswing.com slash trestle to support a great company and this podcast. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this year. They build a rugged locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic backcountry trip. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bearvault to check them out right now. That's B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T, Bear Vault. Andy Mill shares his passion-filled story with a focus around performing at the highest level of multiple sports. And he takes us on the water to his passion for tarpon. We find out how he became an Olympic athlete, later married uh, Chris Everett, another famous uh, tennis athlete, and then started a great podcast along the way. Get ready to launch into this one. Andy brings some good stories today. So without further ado, here he is, Andy Mill from themillhousepodcast.com. I think the best line that represents tarpon fishing was Tom Evans's line on our podcast. And Tom Evans is the greatest big game saltwater fly uh, guy of all time. It, his records are, are just absolutely immense. I'll tell you three great records that he has. Yeah. He caught a 273 pound blue marlin on 16 pound test with a fly rod. He's got a 194-pound tarpon on 12-pound test with a fly rod. And he broke Billy Pate's 188 on 16. That, that was held for like 25 years. He caught a 191 on 16. Wow. I don't even know those numbers. They sound amazing, but I'm not even sure like how to compare that. It's like Chinese speak. I mean, a 273-pound blue marlin on 16-pound test with a fly rod, that's insane. Yeah, that seems crazy. But that's what he does. I mean, he chases the biggest fish available on light tackle. Brings up the question to me, um, you know, like the tech, right? So as you've gone through your, just your life and as 
equipment has gotten better, right? How has that affected the IGA, or, you know, all the records and, and all that stuff? Well, it goes back to knots and tackle, you know, because at one time we didn't have the reels and the rods to effectively fight big fish, knots, monofilament, and all of that has been refined because of chasing world records. Without world record chasing and having that bar set so high, tackle wouldn't be um, challenged uh, nearly as much as it is with bigger fish. Um, and so the evolution of chasing records has really refined our sport. Uh, Freshwater, uh, saltwater, you know, all aspects of chasing big fish. Right, and you've seen it, and you've been there. Uh, I mean, maybe we could, let's take it back to the start real quick sure. on the fly fishing, because I know you started kind of in the freshwater, and then and you've got a long list of accolades to your outdoor, you know, uh, life and things. But but how'd you get into it? So how'd fly fishing start for you? I tell you, it's a, it's it's really kind of a fun story in the fact that uh, my family had moved to Aspen in 1960. So here I am, seven years old, and baseball. Um, was my my heart and, and passion in the summer and i was riding my bike to baseball track uh practice with a, a mitt over you know strung across my handlebars and i saw this fly line arcing across space at wagner park and i thought wow that's cool and i went over there and i didn't realize how big of a guy this was who was teaching the fly fishing a seminar ernie schwieber I don't know if you know that name, but Ernie Schwieber, yeah. oh, one yeah. of the greatest icons uh, ever uh, in freshwater fly fishing, he wrote the book uh, Matching the Hatch, um, Trout. Um, anyway, he taught me how to fly cast. Um, and immediately I was connected to, you know, the art of throwing string across space. And then shortly thereafter, um, I was on the river uh, learning how to catch fish. And then I learned how to tie flies um, probably that next year at the age of 10. And then when I caught my first fish with a fly that I had tied, it was like, oh my God, I am all in. And then uh, I started tying flies in the summers for my allowance in Aspen. So as much as ski racing uh, were my roots, so was fly fishing. I mean, um, it was fly fishing in the summer and, and skiing in the winter. Right. And in Colorado, we, you know, we've had a lot of episodes around Colorado from, you know, I mean, obviously that's a hot spot for freshwater fly fishing. So you've got this fly fishing thing going early. Uh, talk about a little bit about, I mean, let, let's dig into, I want to, obviously we're going to cover fly fishing, but you're, you're skiing. How, how does that, I mean, obviously you're in Aspen, so everybody skis there. I mean, how do you become a pro and Olympic athlete, right? That seems like one of those things where you, you spend all of your life, right? You hear about these Olympians, right? That that's all they do is this one thing, like 18 hours a day, right? Right. Was that you? Is that what you did for a period of your life? Yeah, as a young kid, you know, once you start skiing really well and dominating the hill and zipping around like a little, you know, uh, a little, you know, fly on the side of a mountain, then you see, you know, these guys skiing around these poles stuck in the snow. And I thought, wow, what's that all about? And then I started working, uh, not necessarily working. Uh, I got involved with the Aspen Ski Club, you know, saying, you know, looking you know, going from start to finish as fast as I can. And, and I really got connected to that. 
And then you start racing in small races around Aspen, Aspen Vale Steamboat, uh, Colorado. Then when you get a little bit better, you qualify for events in the Western states and you qualify for events that are national. So as a young skier, um, the question is, how do you get involved with racing and eventually become an Olympian? It's one step ahead of the other, like everything. You, you, you start catching trout and then eventually you're saltwater fishing and then you're bill fishing, you know, same as in skiing. You know, you're, you're ripping down the hill as fast as you can. You see these gates. Uh, and I, you know, there was the Aspen Ski Club. So I went and joined the Aspen Ski Club. And now, you know, I'm zipping down around these gates. And then eventually you start racing in, in local events uh, Aspen Vale Steamboat, then you qualify for, you know, big events in the Western part of the States. And then eventually nationally you keep winning. And then pretty soon, you know, you're, you know, skiing in the, in, uh, a NORAM series, you know, North America and Canada. So you start winning at that level and then you get invited to go race in Europe. Uh, so it's like walking up to the a really tall ladder one rung at a time. And eventually, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool to ski in the Olympics? Wouldn't it be cool to be, you know, representing your country? That's way in the back of your mind, but that's not in the forefront. In the forefront is just like, you know, you, you, you just got to win on a daily basis. And then 10 years down the line, you find yourself in the starting gate of the Olympics. Wow. And it's just like anything, you know, it's, you don't all of a sudden just be great. Yeah. Wow. And what is it? Most people have never, you know, obviously been in the Olympics, right? You're one of those people. And I don't know the percentage of how many of the people that don't make it, but take us to that front gate, you know, so you're there getting ready and you're doing your first Olympic. I mean, what does that feel like? Well, interestingly enough, um, you know, I'd skied in the world championships in 1974. Then I qualified for the Olympics in 76 and only four Americans get to race in the Olympics. That's how hard it is just to make the Olympic team. In my first Olympic event, I got fifth in the pre-Olympics. So the downhill in Innsbruck, Austria was a good fit for me. Uh, that year, there was no snow in Innsbruck, Austria. So they brought all the snow off the Brenner Pass via helicopters. <laughs> and they basically hand-packed the downhill from start to finish. And they sprayed it wow. with water. And the Army sidestepped it. And it was a ribbon of ice from start to finish. The very first training run... Uh, I, I went off, off the course in a big left-hand uh, off-camber uh, high-speed turn into the trees. And, you know, I injured my leg so badly I, I could barely walk for, you know, that, that whole week. I couldn't ski. I couldn't put a ski boot on. Um, but I would go up on one ski and watch everybody else train. And in the Olympics at that time, you had to have – you know, I think it was like three training runs that I got hurt on the first one. The second to last training run, I went out of the starting gate on one ski and stopped. I had a start. And the last training run, um, I'm in the Olympic Village, and I look over and I see this cardboard box that our uniforms came in, and I, and I, I cut two strips of uh, cardboard off this box about four inches wide and about maybe 10 inches long and taped the two together and stuck in the back of my ski boot. And I thought, wow, if, uh, if I can go, if I can, and that would distribute the pressure when I sat back. And the next day I thought, if I just go to the starting gate and freeze my leg to the point that I can't feel it and take off, I might be able to get to the finish gate. And I told the coaches, if I don't have a good, you know, last training run, 
you know, just race maybe, you know, an alternate. So I went to the starting gate and froze my leg and I got ninth in the last training run. I thought, well, I'm back in this thing. And the next day I ended up finishing sixth. So it was not only really, you know, exciting to make it, but all of a sudden I was out of the games because of that injury in that first training run. And I ended up finishing, you know, at a very, uh, you know, it was the second best result ever at the time by an American in, in downhill competition in the Olympics. So it was, you know, it was like uh, overwhelming a little bit. I mean, I'd earned my way there. I'd been skiing in the big events, the world championships, but the Olympics, I mean, that that's the granddaddy. And then all of a sudden I was almost like out cause I got hurt. So there was a big turn of events, you know, I was in, then I was out and then now it took on a whole different animal to be able to race and, and do well. So that was, that was probably, that was the highlight of my ski career. That was it. And so, and obviously there's some fishing in between where you, so, so you started, you're saying, you know, early fishing, getting into fly fishing in the freshwater. And then did, during the skiing time, did you take a break from fishing or were you still fishing all the time? Oh no, I'd fish. So when like I fish in the summers and then when we'd go to like Hintertooks, Austria in the fall to train on the, uh, on the glaciers, I always had a fly rod with me. If I were in, um, wherever, wherever we were going to train, if there was a river nearby, I always had a fly rod knowing that I might be able to, in the afternoons after training, you know, go fish for a little bit. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, I was really, I was really, uh, I was hooked, but I was not crazy about it. It was just like a great passion. And there's a difference between having a great passion for something and being crazy about it. Right. Oh, being crazy, like literally being like over the top. Yeah. It's like when I get, like when I got into tarpon fishing and started winning those big events, I didn't sleep for 10 years. Really? So what would you do? You you would go to bed at like one in the morning and wake up at four? No, it was just like (laughs) your, it was just like, um, your mind is so omnipresent on fly design, leader design, knots, um, catching these fish and refining the art of understanding what it takes to read it, read an animal that has fins and the difference between being good and great as a fisherman, good fishermen can catch a lot of fish and big fish. A great fisherman can catch the fish that doesn't want to be caught. And when you are in a tournament situation, like in a saltwater scenario, you need to have a guide and the difference between a good guide and a great guide is a good guide can find, you know, fish, but a great guide can find the fish that doesn't want to be found. And when you find that guide with that kind of an angler, that is a team to be reckoned with. You're going to dominate. And that's the imbalance that a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, teams have. There might be, it might be in, uh, not an equal dynamic on the front and the back of the boat gotcha and you always had um talk about some of those people uh, who your guides were did you have some of the best oh yeah i did so you know i can take you through the transformation of a of a freshwater guy to a saltwater guy um like many people who were brought to the game of saltwater flying uh, angling were were brought to the game by walker's k chronicles and I think there are millions of people that would say the same before they ever got to be saltwater fly fishermen. They saw a flip palace show on Saturday morning and, uh, 
I too was a, as a skier back in the day and as a trout guy, I couldn't wait to wake up Saturday morning to see where in the world flip was going to go catch fish. And the music was great. The writing was great. The fish catching was awesome. And in the back of my mind, I knew I saw this thing called a tarpon and a bonefish and a permit. And I was like, oh my God, I can't even imagine what that would be like to have a hundred pound fish on the end of my fly rod. And then um, I was invited to fish on the show Fly Fishing the World with John Barrett. And I saw a tarpon for my first time. And when I saw that tarpon open his mouth and eat my fly, I thought it was like getting hit by lightning. It was like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And then when I came to Florida at the time, I think Chrissy and I were married, but Chrissy was from Florida. I was from Aspen. So I was already having a presence in Florida, uh, mostly golf, you know, down here, but I was never really that, that fly guy yet. But once I was on that TV show, I got back to Florida and I said, I got to do this. I contacted a couple of guys and ended up with a guide that many people know, Harry Spear, a very highly respected, iconic flats guide. He and Steve Huff won more fly fishing tournaments than anyone. And Harry became my mentor. And I hadn't—I wasn't thinking about tournaments at that time. I just wanted to go catch these fish. And I fished with Harry probably 40 to 50 days a year. And he, he basically refined me to becoming a tournament angler. And uh, seven years later, um, you know, I started fishing tournaments. So that was the progression for me. Just by chance, I got invited to go to Belize. But initially, it was Flip Pallet and Walker's K Chronicles that, that brought this great fishery, uh, you know, to, to my living room. Um, and, and it was a compelling thing. Yeah, he was huge. Yeah, we had Flip on. I don't have the episode in front of me, but it was uh, it was amazing. It was actually a few years ago, but he told the story of uh, one of the hurricanes that came through and wiped out his house, and he was he stayed in his house while it wiped out his house around him. Yeah, he he and his wife Diane were in their bathtub watching the roof blow off their house. Exactly, and the amazing story about that whole thing. I mean, that was unbelievable. He said Lefty Cray he tells this amazing story. Lefty Cray. Um, Nobody can get in there, right? The place was demolished. And somehow Lefty Cray found his way in there and comes by and gives him a, a, a bag of $30,000 or something like that and said, you, you could use this more than me. We've been saving it for a good... Yeah. Um, unbelievable, right? I mean, that's... So there's some of the people you've been around, right? I mean, Flip... Well, you and, know, and, uh, so get this. So, yeah, you know, then, you know, a number of years later, I started winning all these tournaments. And then I wrote a book, A Passion for Tarpon. And then all of a sudden, um, I was at the IGFA. We had a book signing next door, and I'd already gotten to know Flip and Lefty and Chico and Stu Apt. Um, I see these guys all the time. And since I was winning a lot of the tournaments, you know, uh, they probably, I don't think it was, you know, that gave me any sort of them, any sort of uh, um, extra incentive to speak to me because they're such great guys. They speak to everybody, but we yeah. had a little bit maybe a little bit of a tighter commonality because I was in, in the deeply in, entrenched in this tournament scene and trying to be the best in the world. And uh, my accomplishments were, you know, I, I think they respected those. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm next door at the Bass Pro Shop and we had this signing table and there was Stu, Lefty, Flip, Chico, and myself signing books. <laughs> And I looked down the table 
And I, it was a like a, a like a pinch me moment. Oh my god! Right. I'm signing Jeez. a national award winning book on tarpon next to these next to the Mount Rushmore. That's crazy. Of these saltwater guys. No one in the game is bigger than those guys. And there I was next to him signing my own book. Yep. So how did you get? And first of all, that's amazing. The passion for tarpon is. You know, it's got to be one of the most well-known books on that species out there, right? Um, how did you, if you take it back again, you know, starting out, was it just the skiing that got you to a place where you were able to get in, get notoriety to get into these tournaments? Or how does that, how does even, like, how would somebody get there, right? Because you well, jumped into this place. All you have to do, I mean, it's an invitation. So you you have to be invited or you put your name on a list to be invited. And I'd already been fishing for seven years uh, with Harry. And I'd gotten to know everybody in the game by then. And then when we entered, and Harry was the guy I, I was first uh, fishing with. And so being Harry, and he had a lot of influence, we got into the tournaments right away. Gotcha. And you mentioned um, uh, Chris, your, uh, Chris Everett. Right. Tell me a little about that, because obviously I know, you know, tennis. I, I mean, I'm a big sports. I love baseball, basketball, kind of. I love kind of watching everything, although I don't do much of it now. But talk about that. How, how does this person like that, how do you connect with um, her? And, I mean, a famous, right? Was she fa- Was she a famous person at the time? And, and maybe, was <laughs> how does that look? Are you yeah. serious? She was on the yeah. cover of Newsweek, on the cover of Time Magazine. She had already won 18 uh, Grand Slam titles. Exactly. She was one of the greatest tennis players of, of all time. Of yeah. all time. She was one of the most famous people in the, on, in the world at the time. You know, exactly. we'd go to Japan, and there would be like 200 people waiting at the airport to see her. She was like a Michael Jordan of women's tennis. Exactly, she was. I mean, I remember as I remember the whole thing too, because um, I watched a lot of tennis, like I said. But um, so tell me a couple of things. So first, I guess just tell me. Let's start there. How, how did you How did you connect with her? How does that? Well, I I was going through a, a divorce at the time, and as she was uh, with John Lloyd, and um, we had already uh, were living apart. Uh, we had signed divorce papers and she was in Aspen after Christmas and Martina Navratilova lived in Aspen and I knew Martina and Martina invited Chrissy to come out to Aspen to enjoy a week there before they head to uh, the Australian open. So I met Chrissy at a new year's Eve party and um, we had a lot of commonality. You know, we were athletes and we were both going through a divorce. Chrissy had never skied before. And I was producing a ski show at the time, so I was busy, but we eventually started skiing around a little bit, you know, and she sucked so bad. Oh, my God. The two worst skiers <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen. So you taught her how to ski? You actually taught her how to yeah, ski? Yeah. But the two worst beginning skiers I've ever, ever been uh, with was, was not only Chrissy, but Reggie Jackson, the baseball player. Oh, oh, oh wow. Reggie. Oh, my God. They were both so bad. And like, they didn't want to, they didn't want to slide. They were afraid of sliding and getting hurt. Oh, right. And so every time the skis started to move, Chrissy would put her ski poles out in front of her and stop herself. I said, Chrissy, skiing is about sliding. If you don't want to yeah. slide, if you're not comfortable, this is not going to work. Yeah. You know, but she was always, <laughs> look, take a look at her tennis. She was a baseline tennis player. She was a very conservative player. Oh, so right. Baseline being she's cautious. You're cautious. So like, like in tennis, a serve and volley or like Martinez, an aggressive move, not afraid of getting hurt, not afraid of, right. of, of uh, 
you know, she was a, a big risk taker. Yeah, like Andre Agassi was kind of the extreme, right? He was kind of all over the court and going crazy. Yeah. Great. But a baseline player is a defensive player that will hit a winning shot when that door opens. They never miss it. They she wait. was perfect. She always hit it back perfectly. Yeah. They don't miss. They don't miss. And then somebody makes a mistake and they hit a winner. That's it. That's the way she was in, in skiing. And you cannot be a comfortable skier if you're so worried about getting hurt. And she, still, she was a, still, she was a professional player at the time, still on tour. So, and her father was pretty conservative. So she grew up with this kind of like a cautious, you know, a passive, uh, you know, mode of, involvement with uh, any sort of sports so anyway so we started hanging out and uh great story is i'm not speaking you know uh out of context here because she tells the same story so like uh we're starting to hang out every night we're at dinner we're talking about our lives till like midnight two in the morning we we have this great connection and then uh, chrissy was staying at martina's house and when it came time to leave for the australian open uh chrissy didn't want to leave she didn't feel like playing in the open. She was going through a divorce. And now we have this, this new love that was blooming. And um, so Martina left. Chrissy stayed there. And the first night we spent together, uh, Martina was out of the house. Martina had a king-size bed. So we jumped in Martina's bed. I woke <laughs> up the next morning laying next to Chrissy. And I thought, oh, my God, I just slept with Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Oh, my god! I got to f- call somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I called everybody. That's amazing. And that was the that was the beginning of a 21-year relationship. Wow. 21 years. Yeah. Jeez. We have three kids and she's great. She's going through chemo right now. She's got uh she's got some cancer, but she's going to be fine and so I take her to chemo every 3 weeks and her last session is going to be uh this coming Monday. Oh wow. Wow. So, I mean, obviously you've got, you could probably tell stories about your whole, you know, just your people that you've connected with over the years. Cause it, it, it seems like Aspen, I know Aspen has obviously has been a big impact on your life. Talk a little about, and I know you've talked about this before, but for those that don't know Aspen, is it just like all of the athletes, the best people in the world are there and that's what makes one of the reasons Aspen special? Like describe it a little bit. Well, look, Aspen has great international influence um you have great ski areas around the world aspen's not the best ski area there are better ski towns around the world but there's no better marriage between ski town and ski mountain we have the ideas festival in the summer uh great brains come to aspen Uh, we have great music uh the international music festivals in aspen um so you've got a big spectrum of 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 athletic people, um, really smart intellectuals uh, that are pushing, you know, the uh, the outer edges of what can be done, and and great thinkers. Einstein used to come to Aspen hmm. in the summer, so I think that's the you know one of the biggest attractions. We've got great restaurants, you know, and um, the ambiance there is like maybe Studio Fifty Four if you will, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s and 80s, everyone wanted to, everybody wanted to be in Aspen. Yeah. And again, it was, you know, post-Vietnam, it was the sexual revolution. Uh, there were a lot of things going on and Aspen was, was ablaze with popularity and it continues today. And um, 
you know, the people I've met in Aspen are not nearly as significant as the people I've met traveling the world. Uh, I've met six presidents. I've played golf with three of them. One of them was one of my best friends I traveled the world with for 20 years. He wrote the foreword to my book, President Bush 41. I've met, I've met the Pope. Um, I was really nervous meeting the Pope because uh, I knew that he knew I was a sinner from the seventies. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what did he have to, did you actually talk to him? Did he have anything no, to say? No, <laughs> no, we, did, we just met him and I ran like hell. <laughs> yeah. But right. look, I've been, you know, in the, uh, inside the Arctic circle, you know, uh, with the Inuit guides up there, I've been with, uh, the tribesmen in the Amazon. My life has had such a really big spectrum and the exposure to so many, the variety of people is just unbelievable. Yeah. What do you, what do you attribute most of that to? You know, what, how did you, you've had this life of connecting with all these amazing people traveling the world. You know, obviously we talked about the skiing, but is there anything else that allowed you to do this? Yeah, obviously being, you know, having a marriage to Chrissy and traveling the world with her opened up a lot mm-hmm. of opportunities, you know, cause, uh, her exposure is a thousand times greater than mine as an Olympic skier or hmm. mine as a fisherman. You know, because through her, we had, we used to go to 10 Downing Street and have dinner with Margaret Thatcher before Wimbledon. You oh, know, wow. We first got invited to the White House for, uh, to play tennis. President Bush didn't know Chrissy, but obviously, obviously he was a tennis player and knew who she was. And, and that's what presidents do. They call famous people to hang out with them. And Chris right. was a, you know, a tennis player that President Bush wanted to have at the White House. And wow. then, then he and I connected and. He loved to fish. He loved to play golf. We'd oh. fight at Kenny Bunkport. We'd bass fish in the morning. Uh, then we'd go play golf. Uh, and then we'd come back and have barbecues and, and play horseshoes. And, you know, he was just a fabulous yeah. guy. But without Chrissy, I would have never met him. Lake Lady Rods builds distinctive custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for each angler. These are custom built and specifically tailored to the exact specifications, uh, like I said before. So this is a really cool thing that Chris has going. We actually just did a giveaway and had a winner that drew the giveaway. It's a really cool story that we're going to be sharing more here. And Chris is in the process right now of putting together that rod. Um, Very cool. And I've already talked about the rod that Chris built for me. He does some really cool stuff. He, uh, the cork handle, the real seat. I mean, pretty much everything is very uh, custom and unique. And like Chris likes to say, it's uh, you can't buy a rod like this in the store. Lake Lady also rebuilds and uh, restores bamboo rods from scratch. Another passion of Chris's over there at Lake Lady. And his promise is, Chris just has one big promise. You'll get the most unique rod you have seen this year. Check them out right now, Lake Lady Raws. That's wetflyswing.com slash Lake Lady, L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y, to support this podcast and a great local rod company. What is that like when you go into the White House for the first time with, you know, in this situation? Like, how does that, like, where do you, how do you even prepare for that? Oh, you don't. It's just like, it's like, you know, jaw dropping. You know, you're walking through the White House. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a really great story. So we've already gotten to the White House. We've spent the you know a night in the Lincoln bedroom and the Queen's room, and President Bush and Barbara are good friends. And 
uh, Margaret Thatcher was her friend because Margaret Thatcher's daughter was one of the biographers of one of Chrissy's uh, books. Oh, gotcha. So Margaret Thatcher and President Bush were going to be in Aspen for a conference um, the year Kuwait was invaded. So President Bush calls the house and he said, hey, um, you know, we're coming we're coming into town, Margaret Thatcher and I, in, you know, two weeks and we're going to have this, you know, this little conference and we're going to have dinner, you know, down at the, down at the ranch. And we'd like to have you guys join us. And he said, of course, we'd love to join you. Calls back five minutes later. He said, what are you guys doing for the weekend? I said, well, what do you got? What do you want to do? He said, how about jumping on air force one and flying back to Washington? We'll jump on the helicopter and go to camp David for the weekend. It's <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Jeez. So that, that Thursday we're flying, Chrissy and I are flying back from Canada on a private jet uh, to meet up with the president in Aspen. And we get a, we get a call from the white house and um, it was Patty Presog, his assistant. And she said, look, uh, Kuwait's been in- invaded and president Bush cannot spend the night in Aspen. He's going to have the, this, this conference and jump on the plane and come right back to Washington. But he still wants to go to camp David and have you guys join them. So, if you want, you know, have your plane come to, you know, Dallas and the White House will pick you up and you still wants to go to Camp David, which we did. Um, and that following morning uh, at the White House, we heard President Bush walking down the hall. And whenever he said your name, there was always a, a rise in his inflection. Andy, mm-hmm. Chrissy, where are you? You know, <laughs> oh yeah. He came, he, we met up. He said, hey, we got some stuff going on. Come down to the Oval Office at three. And after uh, I want you to you know meet the guys, and after the you know the press conference regarding Kuwait, we'll jump in on the helicopter. So we went to Camp David, and there was that mini summit that Saturday morning. And Sunday morning there was a knock on our cabin because in Camp David you have all these little cabins all over the premises, and the main cabin is the Aspen cabin where the president and the first lady live. There was a knock on the door early that that Sunday morning, and I opened it up, and it was President Bush. And the door just kind of cracked. It goes, hey, I can't sleep. You want to go shoot some skeet? Huh. So we go out, we're shooting shotguns and stuff and blasting things. And then we go yeah. to breakfast and it was his daughter, Doro, and I and President Bush. Chrissy was not feeling well. And he never liked to talk, talk shop. No. Politics or shop. He just wanted to talk about the things he loved. And I, I really made sure I stayed there. And... Uh, we did a TV show in the Arctic circle together. He flew up and he was on my fishing show. So we became very close. So at this point, you know, with Kuwait being invaded and a lot of stuff going on, uh, I actually stepped outside of that, that box. And I asked him, I said, what's your biggest fear with Saddam Hussein in Kuwait? And he said, my biggest fear is that we may go to war because Saddam Hussein is a guy you cannot negotiate with or talk to. And yeah. he said, but if we do this, we're going to do it quickly. Uh, we're going to do it fast. He, and with a coalition of 32 countries, uh, they removed uh, Saddam from Kuwait in 44 days. Wow. To be there, you know, at the Camp David with President Bush talking about we might go to war before anyone else knew was like, an, oh, my God moment. It's like, oh, you kidding me. Right. You know. So wow. anyway, obviously I've had, I've had a very lucky life, you know, with yeah. really a lot of powerful people. That is, that is. And I don't, you know, and this is amazing. I mean, these stories are just, I, I could sit here and chat about these all day. I, I want to talk a little bit about the fishing because, you know, 
I guess the podcast, right? I mean, the Millhouse podcast is something that you're doing now and has been had a pretty big impact. I'm interested in that. Talk about how you how you prepare for your interviews because you've interviewed some big names there. How, how do you get ready for each of those? And you do kind of a is it a weekly bi weekly show? It's a bi weekly show, and it originally it was Nikki's uh, vision. I didn't know anything about podcasts, and I was not interested, but you know, he convinced me and he was, he's producing the whole thing. So the workload is all on him and we co-host the the show together. But initially he was saying, dad, we're just going to sit around and talk fishing. And then I thought, no, I'm going to interview our guests like you or me. And we focus on icons and hall of famers because when these guys go, their stories are going to go away. And we want to seek out some of the older guys, you know, right away. Uh, and that be told, Billy Knowles, who we interviewed a year ago since his past, and we got his story from his mouth. And the beauty of our podcast is it's all videotaped, so you can watch it on YouTube. And these stories are incredible. They start talking about their passions, and you got 80-some-year-old guys crying, yeah. you know, about, about their lives with fishing. So how I prepare, if I'm – interviewing somebody I know extremely well. There's not a lot of preparation. I'll make a couple of notes about some key points I might want to talk about. But if it's somebody, you know, like somebody we just recently did, um, like a number of them, uh, I'll look on the internet and and try to find out about their history. I'll call them in advance and ask them what topics you might want to talk about. uh, And I'll get a little intel. So at least I have a, a beginning, a middle and an end as to where I want to take that conversation. Um, Yeah. And it's worked out pretty well. That's good. Yeah. And you guys, yeah, and it's mostly focused on salt anglers. I mean, it's, it's a mix, but it's a majority of salt. It's mostly key saltwater fly fishing guys, yeah. but we've done offshore guys. We did a, a couple hunters, uh, Jay Scott, um, mm, another buddy yep. of mine. And yep. we also did Neil Beidelman, who is a friend of mine in Aspen. And he was a guide on Everest in 96, where all those people died when they got caught in that form. Oh, wow had nothing to do with fishing and his podcast is ranked number two of our 65 interviews and he's not even a fisherman but like i said you know whether you're a fisherman or not if you've got a great story we want to hear it exactly and so what we do is um my you know how i prepare is i i I just don't want to fly find a flat spot so I just, I try to, I try to be, you know, prepared and I've been in the business long enough to understand, you know, how to do this, how to, how to yeah. converse with people. That's right. Um, I think if I'd not been a broadcaster for 20 years and done a bunch of interviews in the past, it might yeah. be a little bit weak. It'd be, I'd be a lot, a lot weaker at it. That's right. Yeah. And I want to talk a little about that because you have a good background in broadcasting. So you were broadcasting. Talk a little bit about that. It was kind of after your skiing. Yeah. After I got hurt, I started a ski show called Ski with Andy Mill. And I, and I, and it was a show that I owned and I, I sparter syndicated it around the country because I was trying to figure out how to make a living. And I knew I couldn't work for anybody. So I thought I'd just, you know, start this on my own ski show. And I, I won't go into that, but it made yeah. me a lot of money over the course of 20 years. But but it got my foot into the door and then the networks contacted me to do the, the, uh, the color work. Yeah. The, the play by play work, you know, on the Olympics. Oh, wow. And then I, so I covered the 92 and 94 Olympics for CBS 
And then I worked for 20 years as a broadcaster, all World Cup skiing. Right. And then at the end of that run, I was, I hated broadcasting. I hated talking about ski racing because I felt like I was going down the road in a school bus and I was in the back of the bus watching the great things go by. I wanted to be driving that bus. And <laughs> yeah. after 20 years, I got invited to host a, um, a fishing show by the Outdoor Life Network. And I told them, I said, I've got no time, but if you pay me the same amount that I'm making as, as a skier and you give me a four-year contract, I'll change careers. So I did. I left skiing 40 years ago and became, you know, a host of a fishing show, which we did 81 shows from around the world over, over a period of eight, of eight years. We fished St. Thomas for 800 pound, thousand pound blue marlin, Costa Rica, Guatemala, the Seychelles, the east side of Africa. I did a show with President Bush inside the Arctic Circle. So that, so at that point, my life became one of fishing at a professional level that was it now you were changing now the skiing was behind you gone and I, gone. I was sick of the ski stuff by then but that's all that's the only thing i knew how to do the only thing that's only my you know the revenue i had available so it was like a like a stroke of luck because the outdoor life network knew i liked to fish and I'd, i did like five specials for them they said god you, we should have your, you should have your own show and you know that's in bolts of it and then from that, I was reading a story. A friend of mine um, sent me um, a New York Times article that uh, it was on Henry Winkler, who's another guest that we're trying, we're hoping to get on. And it was a really good story. And actually, they had an audio. The whole thing was transcribed, and somebody read it. You know, it was basically his story. But it got me thinking. And I think you've had a connection, right? New York Times. You were a, a journalist at some point. Can you talk a little bit about that, and or or maybe talk about what your because I think there was some you left the Times, right? Well, I never wrote for them. I had a, uh, a part-time gig with Good Morning America. I was a segment host. So I'd go to Europe and do like five to seven segments on skydiving, uh, canyoning, you know, rappelling down waterfalls and stuff like that. Hmm. So I do these specials for Good Morning America. Oh, wow. uh, I've written briefly for a couple of magazines. I've got a um, uh, tail magazine. I write for them right yeah. now uh, quarterly. Uh, oh yeah, but never. I'm not good enough to write for the Times. <laughs> okay, so you're not. And I'm trying to think. Of what, I, I must have missed that. That's some of my my lack of uh, journalistic ability. But no, I, no problem. I'm sure they've written about me a time or two, but I've never written. For the <laughs> exactly. Nice. So so let's let's hear. So the tarpon. I want to I want to dig into a little bit of fishing here. So so you're you got this. You're into the fishing. You know, talk about the tarpon just a little bit. Like, what is what makes? Because I've asked, you know, Jim Teeny was an old friend of the family, and he, I asked him a while back. I said, you know, what is your favorite species? And he's like, tarpon, no question. I've heard a lot of people say that. And here's a big, here's a big steelhead guy, and uh, Roland Barton. Yeah, Roland. I work with the IGFA. I'm a trustee to the IGFA, and I do all the MCing for the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. And when Roland Martin was inducted into the IGFA Hall of Fame, I was the MC, and I asked Roland because he used to tarpon fish the tournaments. I said, Roland, you know, you're known as this, this big bass guy. What's your favorite fish? Yeah. He said, no question, a tarpon on a fly rod. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, so it is tarpon. So here's the thing about, about a tarpon, and I think a lot of people understand this. It's been spoken about. A, a tarpon is 100 million years old, and it's a fish that's got great resiliency to, you know, uh, pollution, bad water. They can breathe air. Uh, they have a bladder system. Um and they like to swim 
you know, when they migrate, they swim over white sand, shallow white sand bottoms, <laughs> and they love to eat flies. And they jump. And when they crash through the air, they put holes in the ocean the size of trucks. So it's the perfect game fish. You don't, you're not in deep water trolling, hoping to have this fish find you. We are hunting these fish. You never throw your fly until you see that fish. And you get to watch that fish bite your fly. So it's like you're dry fly fishing to a 150-pound fish. I mean, how compelling is that? Yeah. And they, they, they want to be caught. This fish, it's not like a permit. Harpen want to eat flies. Yep. They are really, really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> they are. So that's the they thing. They're, they're not very intelligent, even though they've been around. Oh, for, my God. So how have they survived? That's the question. So how have they survived so long? You know, because they can breathe air. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they travel. They, they can, they're resilient. They can jump in the bus and go down the road. But, you know, back in the early 60s, there were so many tarpon around. A lot of the guys didn't like to catch them because they were too easy. And then they yeah. didn't want to, you know, endure the work it took to catch them. Because it's not easy to catch a 120-pound fish on a fly rod unless you really know what you're doing, and not very many people know how to catch a big fish. So they were yeah. always chasing bonefish and, and permit, a lot of those guys. But right. once the tarpon started to get smart, then they became, you know, uh, more prioritized to chase them. Yep. But either right. you, you find these guys that gravitate to steelhead, bass, bonefish permit or tarpon mm -hmm. and i find myself i love them all yeah but i gravitated to the tarpon because it was big and bad and ferocious and you know it was a friggin stud yeah i mean when That's you right. catch my biggest is about 180 pounds but uh also too you know i, I fish the permit tournaments and the bonefish tournaments and if there's one fish that let's just say my last fish what would it be I would be waiting for a big tailing 13 pound bonefish or maybe a 30 yeah. pound permit. Because when you're waiting, whether you're on a river or in the Bahamas waiting at a white sandy flat or in the Bahamas or in the Seychelles, you're alone. It is organic. You feel the sea breeze. You see this tail flickering, you know, in, in the light, you know. Uh, there's nothing cooler than to walk, you know, get dropped off and you walk for the next two hours catching bonefish uh, by yourself. There's no other words being spoken. Like in a boat, you have a boat. The, the guy's got to set the boat boat up for, you know, the great shot. Mm -hmm. There's always conversations. Yeah. Um, to me, I like to hear my own voice. You do. I like to be alone. That's why I like being in the high country. Oh, right. If I'm if I'm not with my son, I really don't want to be with anybody for the most part. And if I if I take anybody fishing, there's got to be a there's got to be a really close connection because that time on the water is invaluable. And the older you get, I'll be seventy this year. The older you get, the more you appreciate the time we have left. Yeah. And my body is, you know, I've been hurt. So I just had a shoulder operation, you know, my 23rd operation. Wow. So my body is not capable to do big uh, elk hunts at 11,000 feet and carry animals out of the high country for very many more years. So we have to cherish and protect. We have to protect these moments that we really cherish. Yep. 
That's a great point. And how do you, when you look at it throughout your year now, if you look ahead, how do you prioritize what you're going to do? Do you say, oh, it's a, you, it, you've it, been everywhere. <laughs> no, it, it, it's easy. It's easy. Um, Cause I'm a seasonal guy. So in the spring, like right now, I've got a house in the keys for six weeks and we tarpon fish every day, my son and I for six weeks. Then we go to Aspen, I'll get in the high country and start try to get in shape for elk hunting. And then all of September and the early part of October, we hunt Colorado and Montana uh, for elk with bow and arrows. And then I come to Florida and I start playing golf. I, I love golf. I like to compete in tournaments. I play golf, you know, until about maybe February. And if, the, if the fishing gets right and the sharks come in, I design these fly rods, saltwater fly rods uh, with Howard Croston, the main designer for Hardy. And then I'll go out and chum up uh, black tip spinner sharks. They're about 90 pounds. And we test these new fly rods and reels every year, you know, chasing these sharks. And then I go to the Keys for seven weeks and, and, and focus on, on tarpon. There you go. So I'm lucky because I have these great passions that, that cover the spectrum of seasons. Right. And you can do the, all those things you can continue doing even into your older age, right? Because it's, except for carrying out an elk, maybe you got to figure that one out. Yeah. You, yeah, that's all right. I had my back fused, I think six years ago because of carrying all this crap out of the high country. Yeah. It was so bad. My back was so bad. I couldn't breathe for three years. Oh my gosh. But I had it fused and now it's great. So your 23 surgeries or whatever that was, that just skiing all mostly skiing related. I used to be a motorcycle racer. Oh, wow. Um, I was a motocross, uh, motocross racer in the seventies. Oh man. Like jumping off those like yeah. foot. Yeah. Yeah. And I got, I hurt my knee the summer before the Olympics. Um, but I've had 13 knee operations. I have a replaced knee. Now I broke seven vertebrae in my neck and my neck and back back fusion broken legs and arms. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's just, it's just, I'm not very smart. <laughs> right. So you're sitting there. I mean, that's a great thing. Surgery. I mean, are you feeling that you're still getting out there? I mean, you're, it's great. Well, you know what? Your passions outweigh your brains. Sometimes yeah. it's not a good thing, yeah. you know, but look, I'm not going to stop doing these things that got me hurt. But what I do I don't ride my Ducatis nearly as fast. Those things will kill you. I've had my yeah. du- my motorcycle 180 miles an hour. Jeez. I don't I don't ski bumps anymore. I ski groomed slopes, even though I still ski 50, 60 miles an hour. So you just have to be a little bit more selective in, in how you participate with these things. Like yeah. elk hunting, I don't want to hunt down into a hole where I've got to carry 80 pounds of, uh, uh, of right. elk meat to the top of the mountain. I'll hunt on the top and carry it, carry it down to the truck. Yeah. You know, so you just have to be a little bit smarter. Yeah. You know, that's it. That's it. Wiggle a little bit better. The, um, I'm interested in your, you know, I think a Nikki, I originally connected with when I connected you, I was trying to track you down and I talked to Nikki and, um, it's interesting. I always love the family because my dad, like I said, he was a, a guide. He was kind of the bigger than life. I mean, he was like almost a pro athlete like golf baseball, basketball, you know, he was this bigger than life. And it seems like, and I had three brothers and we were all like a little bit lower level, right? None of us were quite at his level. Um, I mean, how do you, when you look at your son, do you, do, do your son, or I'm not even sure your other kids, but I know Nikki, is he following in your footsteps or is that a challenge for him trying to live up to, you know, what you've done? I don't think at all. You don't live up to anybody. He just is chasing his own heart and yep. he is, 
aged well beyond his years. He's always had um, older friends. His humor is a little bit more sophisticated than most people his age. He's always been, he's always gravitated to sitting on my shoulders and playing, you know, with the mullet and the, and the bait well. Gravitating, I, I taught him how to fish at a very young age and he got it. You know, the old yeah. adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But he has loved everything that I do. Uh, he doesn't chase the tournament scene as much as I did. Um, I think if he had the right guide, he, he possibly could, but the timing is not right. And he would win. He's probably the top two or three saltwater tarpon fishermen in the world right now. Hmm. But with Nikki and all my sons, you know, I got that they were all racing motorcycles, you know, when they were eight, nine, oh, wow. 12 years old. Uh, they were all, they all fished. I exposed them to everything. And I said, look, guys, I don't care what you guys do. Chase your heart. Yeah. Whatever you decide to do, you give it everything you have. Be the best at it. And I don't care if you snowboard or ski or fly fish or bait fish. I don't care. Yep. And people say, God, your kids snowboard. Don't you wish they were skiers? I said, no. <laughs> no. They're right there. I'll be ripping 70 miles an hour down the hill. Yep. Nikki's right there. Oh, yeah. You know, he's on a snowboard. I don't care. We're still together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So family's always been pretty important. I mean, how has that been with your life? Have you been able to be there? I, it sounds like the kids have been with you even at an early age through all your stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I changed diapers as many as many times and as often as Chrissy did. You know, when I was there at home, I was fully present. I wanted yeah. to be, I couldn't wait to wake up and, and do things with my kids. You know, I was always, you know, whatever it took, soccer practices, whatever they were doing, Chrissy and I were there. And if I was traveling, producing TV shows at the time, you know, she was there. Sometimes we'd travel as a family to Europe when Chrissy was working over there or wherever she had to go. And when I was doing my thing, we, I never took the family because I was always on a boat. You know, they did come down to the Keys when I was tournament fishing a couple of times. But for the most part, when I did my thing, I just went out and did it and, and raced back. But no, I love being a father, and I still do. Uh, my kids and I are, are best friends, especially Nikki, because I'm with him every day. He lives in my guest house in Aspen. We host oh, a podcast together. Right. Uh, fish. He's an unbelievable elk hunter. He's a scratch uh -huh. golfer. Oh, wow. I'm, oh, yeah. He's like world-class in six sports. So go. every day, we're doing something. So he has kind of, oh, is kind of similar at your level of, of what you. Oh, oh, yeah. he's better than me. Yeah. You know, uh, he just hasn't won as much as I have, but yeah, he won the state in tennis at doubles. Huh? He, he beats his mom in tennis, you know? No kidding. That's a pretty big statement. I mean, obviously Chrissy's older now, but yeah, she hasn't forgotten how to play tennis. No. So she's still, that's, that's really cool. Gosh. I mean, you've had, you know, like we've talked, I mean, we've covered a lot of things here. I mean, I think we're going to leave some stuff, you know, on the table, but um, I want to hear about that TV show. So describe a little bit the, the name of that show the, the, and what you've done in, in that field over the years. Oh, my fishing show I had was called Sportsman's Journal with Andy Mill. And uh, we had that, I don't even know what years, I think we had it in the early 2000s. We just highlighted Lake Lady Rods earlier, and Stonefly Nets is doing a lot of the same stuff. That's why we love supporting them, and I know you do too. 
finding those small companies who are producing great products locally is very awesome. So I'd love if you can check in with Ethan. He's uh, he's out of South Carolina. He's South Carolina native, uh, but he was bitten and smitten by the uh, by the fly fishing bug in 2014, and that's when Stonefly Nets was created. He now lives in the trout rich waters of Arkansas and uh, handcrafts these sweet wooden nets. I've got a pretty cool history of Ethan. I'm really glad that he's along with us and we're going to keep this going strong. So if you can, it would be amazing. If you need a net, you need a gift, you need anything, you want to support this podcast and a great company, check out Ethan, what he's got going right now. You can select from different sizes, wood options. He's got some stuff you can pick up at the website or you can just do a custom a fully custom operation that's uh, suited to exact colors, wood, grain, and all that stuff. He kind of does the full custom thing as well. Let's check out Stonefly Nets right now, wetflyswing.com slash stonefly. That's Stonefly, a custom net, and you get it delivered right to your doorstep. In fact, I got one in a box right here that I'm going to be taking up north. So I've got I've got Stonefly. It feels good to have some some Stonefly nets sitting around. So So check it out right now. Okay, let's get back to the show. I remember you, by the way, the ski, when you said the ski, uh, I remember, I think back to the, the early nineties, you know, now I'm like, oh yeah, I totally remember you doing that because I ever, you know, of course you follow the Olympics, right? Even though I wasn't a skier, right? um, it's still, so it's pretty interesting because you're, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, know you from the skiing, but I mean, there's so much more you've done, including, I mean, do you feel like the sports, the fishing people know you more for the fishing or the, the skiing? Oh, much more. I mean, now when I go to the Keys, wherever I go, people are coming up and saying, God, I love your podcast. Yeah. Oh, so the podcast is getting out there. Oh, yeah. We have over 100 countries listening. Yeah. We've had, um, I don't know, 750,000 downloads in the last six months or so. Oh, wow. So a lot of people in, in the really inside trenches of tarpon fishing, know my success as an angler because I won more tarpon tournaments than anyone. And there are only three of us that won a bonefish permit and tarpon tournament. And I was the first one to do that. No kidding. So my, my tournament success, um, a lot of people know of that, but Mm -hmm. more people know about the podcast. Yeah. And people, you know, you're walking up a staircase and somebody's coming down. Hey, I love your podcast, man. Great to right. keep it up, you know, and you hear that all the time. Yeah. And that, and that does my heart great, you know. And what has been the secret, do you think, to your success on the podcast? Having great guests. Yeah. And, and talking, talking really about not superficial stuff, but game-changing things and asking questions that, that most people don't want to ask. Um, like a prime example, we did one with David Mangum and he's got a lot of issues with his career, you know, spot ownership, the ownership of the intellectual property of that spot, yeah, which yeah. gives, which he thinks gives him the right to go over and tell somebody to move. You oh, know, wow. I, I know how to fix that spot better than you. I found that spot. So you gotta get the, you gotta get out of here. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> What he's done is really significant in many ways because he's written the book Tarpon with Yeti. He's got the film 120 Days. Of yeah, that's film. right. Yep. And in that film, you know, he 
relishes the fact that he has a skull uh, on his anchor line and he's like, you know, the bully of the flats. He's proud of that. So in our podcast, I had to ask him about all that stuff. Like what gives you the right, because you know how to fish this spot better than anybody else. What gives you the right to go trespass on that guy's ownership of the actual real estate? Hmm. Like Steve Huff says, the person who owns a spot is the guy who gets there first and pushes that push pole into the ground, into the ocean bottom. He owns that spot. But when he leaves, that spot's open to anybody else who comes back in. There is no ownership of the ocean. So there's a big imbalance of the people that say, look, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've refined this spot. And when some guy comes along and sees me fishing here that I've never seen before, and they stop their boat, and they get the binoculars out, and they see me. And the next day I get here, and he's in that spot. So I see both sides. Right. So what makes a podcast, I think, really interesting is covering not only the obvious, but the stuff that might, you know, bring out the, uh, the fire, uh, that sometimes a lot of people might not want to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is always the, I think about that on my show is that, you know, obviously getting some new, new content and things like that, but also sometimes the craziest questions are, turns out to be the one snippet that's like, Oh my God, that was unbelievable. And it's because you got that person to open up for a minute. It's like me talking about sleeping with Chrissy and Martina and never to Exactly. That's going to be the, that's going to be the snippet. That's definitely going to be the one. And because you just, you imagine that when you were saying that, I was like, gosh, I hope Martina didn't walk in the room. You know, that would be a kind of a, crazy she was situation. already in Australia. <laughs> so, but I know, but that's the amazing thing because the podcasting, it's all about, obviously it's stories, but even though you're this, you know, this person with tarpon, you got this giant tarpon behind you on the wall. And, um, but really for me, it's interesting, all the other stuff, like right. what made you, you know what I mean? How you got to this and we're getting, I'm getting a feel for that now. Right. I mean, you've, sure. you know, you dedicated your life to this and you had a couple of opportunities and, and you met, you know, and Chris, you know, I mean, that story is crazy too, but I had another, I was kind of thinking here on the podcasting cause I love podcasting is obviously my focus. I had a couple of notes here on the, um, the daily and radio lab. Those are two. Did you, were you affiliated with those shows at all? Or was that something? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, so when I started this, I was, um, on my podcast, we started 2017. And when did you guys launch your, your show? I think we've been just over, over just a little bit over two years. Yeah. Two years. So basically it's 20 now we're 22. So yeah. So you started in kind of 20 sometime in 20. So that's pretty, those numbers are impressive. I mean, in a couple of years getting up to approaching, yeah. I mean, a million downloads a year Yeah, in, we, in the fishing space in saltwater, right? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the, the number one podcast we had with flip, I think we had 40,000 downloads and Neil Bidem and the, the, the Mountaineer, Everest guy has like 38,000 downloads. Yeah. Um, and Nikki knows the numbers better than I, he's the brains behind the whole thing. I'm just, I'm just the mouth. <laughs> he does it. He does it. So he knows, so he's doing all the production and, and are the interviews? Some are, they're almost all in person, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. We videotape everything. We want to make sure we see that person's face when we ask that question. Yep. So your video, so you have, and they either come to your, your home or you go out to them. Or we go to theirs and we have a three camera shoot. And, um, the beauty of it is, you know, a family member can look back 
about, you know, this grandfather or father or, you know, relationship or, or even a famous person and go to YouTube and listen to that guy's story. Exactly. Because a lot of guys are not that famous. And what happens is a lot of TV shows are now on shelves. They go away. Magazine articles go away. Yep. But now this lives uh, eternally on a space that everybody can tap into. Exactly. So for the rest of time, like when Billy Knowles died, we had like over 200 emails saying, thank you for getting Billy's story before he passed. Yep. And that's our goal. We're trying to preserve history. Yep. And I was telling the guys in the ski world, Ski Racing Magazine, Ski Racing needs to have a podcast so you can talk to Franz Klammer and all these icons, Billy Kidd. So there isn't a ski podcast? Not that I know of. And they wanted me to do it. I said, no, I don't No, I, I have no time. I don't care. Yeah. I want to enjoy my time that I have left, you know, and not yeah. be working, you know, that much. Yeah. Uh, but that's the beauty of, of what we do. We focus on saving stories that are going to go away. It's like Joan Wolf. She's yes. 91. She's the yep. first lady of fly fishing. Amazing. I want to fly up and find her. We know each other well. I've done a bunch of things with her over the years. And sit down and talk about fly casting and how she got started and, you know, uh, Lee Wolf yep. and Atlantic Salmon and all that. Did you know, did you know Lee? No, I did not know him. Yeah. Joan, we, uh, we had on, I've every, um, I tried every hundred episodes or so do a, like you're saying, get a, the biggest person in the world in that. And I had Joan Wolf on in episode 100 because I really wanted to celebrate. Oh, awesome. And it was so cool because, you know, at the end of it, she literally gave me relationship advice. It was so, it was so funny. It was like, she, she's such a cool person and obviously the history, but yeah, I was pretty excited about that one. And um, there, you know, there a couple people we didn't get, you know, Flip was one person I never met. I've only heard stories, of, or uh, sorry, um, Lefty. Lefty, Lefty yeah. was, you know, I've only heard stories about Lefty, and they've all been amazing, but that's one struggle. And Lefty, you you knew Lefty. Very well. He used to, uh, we used to do symposiums together, and he'd come to Florida, stay at my house, and I would do the, the tarpon uh, presentation, how to successfully catch tarpon, and he would speak about everything else. But he mentored me in the book I wrote, uh, when I went through a divorce with Chrissy, I was really in a bad spot for about three years. And that's why I ended up writing that book because I needed something to get me out of that hole. Oh, wow. And Tom Perro, the publisher, begged me for three years to write a book on Tarpon. I said, I'm not an author. I, I No, I don't want to do this. And then I thought, this will help me get out of that dark place. I said, Tom, I'll write this. It's going to take a while because I'm not a writer, but the finished product will be good, I promise. And five years later, you know, uh, we had the, the book was published, but, uh, but Lefty would call me all the time and ask how I was doing and this and that. And, and I spoke to him, Bob Clouser and I were at the Somerset trade show when, when Lefty called me the day before he died. And the last conversation I had with Lefty was Bob Clouser and I talking to Lefty. Oh, wow. But, um, you know, he was, he was an unbelievable man, you know, yeah. you know, the hyperbole that goes with that is not, it's not hyperbole. It's the real deal. He, yep. he was in all aspects of greatness as a, as a person, as a fisherman, as a mentor, Lefty yeah. Cray was that guy. Right. Yeah. He was one of those, you, yeah, you don't replace Lefty. I mean, he's gone. As you look out, 
you know, I'm sure a lot of the new people coming up too. I mean, how, how do you, when you see now that you're, you know, you're on the, getting older and, and going to be, you're still doing it, but do you see um, a lot of um, changes in the saltwater space, like new anglers come in or is it, I mean. Yeah. You know, yeah. The techniques of tarpon fishing have evolved so much that my style of fishing back in the day would not cut it today because the whole dynamic of fishing in the palola worm and double hand stripping the fly. I just wrote an article on Till Magazine talking about how the game changed with the evolution of double hand stripping fly patterns. Who actually brought that to the table? And Scott Collins and uh, Dave Deleuze won three tarpon tournaments in the same year, all three in the same year, double hand stripping worm flies. And after that, everybody would it. No kidding. If you're on the ocean, if you're not double hand stripping worm flies, you're handicapping yourself. So this is like just tucking the rod and just stripping as fast as you can. Just like a, just like a striper fisherman. Yeah. You know, and double hand stripping worm flies. You know, the old school was fishing feathered flies where you slide it out there and slide the fly. The fish sees it. You might start tapping it and sliding it. Tap, tap, slide. And yeah. get into it. So he'll come over and go tap, tap, and you kind of force feed him. Yeah. Now it's about swinging worm fly, you know, towards them. And it's a reaction bite. They see it. Sometimes they'll follow it for a little bit and grab it. But if you slide that fly right in front of their face, it's almost like putting a steelhead fly in front of a yep. steelhead. You Same know, deal. it's like a force feed. They're not hungry. Yeah. Sometimes they'll touch it and like mess with it a little bit. And tarpaulin either grab it or they want. Oh, they will follow it. Yeah. I've had flies on the on their on their faces, lying on their noses for like 10, 15 feet. They're the flies right there. Oh man. And, and finally you do something different. One little bit longer strip, trying to take the fly away from it, and it'll jump out and grab it. God. You know, but that whole game of cat and mouse. Yeah. What I loved about tarpon fishing and the whole worm presentation and how you fish worm flies for tarpon now is not that sexy. It's technical. You put the fly in the right space, you double hand strip it in, in, in just a continuous motion and rely on the fish to come grab it. There's no more foreplay. Hmm. And in the really? old days, I mean, I got, I was really good at that. I could feed fish that, that didn't want to be caught. I just yeah. had a knack and a feel for it. It's almost like, so you're just connected to that fish. You're just kind of playing with it. Like you said, I knew, I knew how to talk to tarpon. I really did. I, and I was really, really good at feeding fish. Yeah. But you only learn that by being in front of fish an awful lot. Right. And you understand what they don't like and understanding what, what, what will it take? And sometimes you're not sure, but you have such a big bag of options in your pocket that all of a sudden you do a little bit of a different tweak, like wiggle your rod tip or something like that. Like huh. a great fisherman has a thousand gears to fish with. You have so many different aspects of how you cast the fly, a backhand sidearm hooking the fly. Um, You've got to have the, the most amazing dexterity because the boat's in a certain position. The wind is blowing from a certain angle. The wind is coming over your right shoulder at 20 miles an hour. You can't make a forehand cast. You'll end up with a fly right in your mouth. So you got to learn how to backhand cast and sometimes hook the fly. Um, casting dexterity is, is I mean, there's so many things you've got to do right, you know, to catch tarpon. Right. Like if you're spay casting, right? Yeah. It's a pretty one-dimensional cast. Yeah. There's no underhand sidearm, uh, flipping the fly like a permit fly. 
you don't throw a permit fly overhand because when the fly turns over, that heavier fly hits harder. So when I permit fish, it's all sidearm. So the fly lands coming in from, from a side angle. So it lands softer. And if you're really good, and it's a hard cast to be accurate with, halfway through that sidearm cast, if you flip your tip upward, the fly comes under your leader, set up over the top of the leader. Mm, the sidearm yep. cast, and if you flip that tip up, that fly comes from under your tip and under your leader, and it flips up just before it hits the water, and oh, right. it, lands, it lands like a teardrop. Yeah. And you have a heavy fly. You have a permit feeding. You want that fly to land kind of softly, uh, you know, a couple of feet in front of it. You can do that flip and slide that fly, a heavy fly in there like, like, it's, a, like it's a leaf falling onto the ocean. Yeah. What's that cat? Does that cast have a name? Justin Ray calls it the gooch. The gooch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he got that, but the you gooch, know, yeah. I, but I don't about right. like, like a laid up tarpon, you know, in real yeah. clear water where there's no current, where you don't have a chance to lead that fish very far. You can take that, that, that sidearm cast and flip that tip uh, up and have that, that tarpon fly come from underneath and land like it just as a teardrop, seriously. And all of a sudden, the fly is just there, you know, because the key to catching tarpon is to get the fly right in front of its face without the tarpon knowing how it got there. Oh, right. So, so that's the thing. When that tarpon sees that thing, what, what is the tarpon? Think like a tarpon. What's the tarpon thinking? Well, oh, well, what's that? Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. He, yeah, he's not thinking like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat some food. He's just like, what is that? He might think it's food. Um. On the ocean is a little bit different. That's more of a reactionary bite. But if you've got a laid up fish, he's not going to leave his bed to go oh. to, to give you, give you a, a reactionary bite. That right. fish, you got to present he's that. Just bite he's just hanging food. out. Yeah. He's just laying there. So if you've got good current, I'll, I'll put my fly way up current and let the current bring my fly to the fish. And then once it gets just in front of it, then I might tap that fly or slide it. And the fish will swim out of, out of its bed and start to fly, you know, to follow your fly. Then you start working your fly. You tap, tap, slide, tap, tap, and then it grabs it. What's the tap? What's the tap, tap? It's like a little, a, a baby bump, a baby uh, strip. Oh, yeah. A little it might strip. only be, it might only be an inch. It might yeah. even be two inches you're moving that fly. Yeah. And depending on the fly you're using, you have to imitate the, you know, how that fly is supposed to swim. So if you're using a shrimp pattern. You got to bump it a little bit so it like it like jumps in the water just like a normal normal shrimp, gotcha. but they too will slide smoothly in the water. So sometimes yeah. you slide your hand, your stripping hand, you know. So it varies so much, but the old school is going away with the invention of the of the two hand stripping the worm fly. Yeah, that's it. The worm fly. That sounds interesting. The worm the worm flies never get a good. Um, it's like the San Juan worm, right? They never get respect. It's not a sexy thing. <laughs> it's not a sexy thing at all. Yeah. But it works. That's the great thing, right? It works. Yeah. But, you know, look, I don't care how people catch fish. I'm not, I'm not one to, like, poo-poo um, anybody because that's, that's their business. And I don't want to sound like a, uh, you know, like a know-it-all and, you know, an uppity-up kind of, like, have attitude of, you yeah. know, and there's a lot of people like that. If you don't fish strictly IGFA, oh, you know, right. you're not fly fishing. Oh yeah. You know, it's like Rufus, uh, Rufus, uh, Wakeman said, 
I want to fly fish. I don't want to fish with fly tackle. Mm. So in the world of world record keeping and the IGFA, if you're fishing uh, monofilament, your tippet higher than 20 pound test, that is not acknowledged by the IGFA. Oh, right. So a lot of people feel unless you're fishing 20 pound test or less, you're not fly fishing. No kidding. Even though you're casting with a fly rod and a reel. Wow. And, and I think you are. Yeah. It's just not, you're not compliant with the IGFA. How do you factor in, and this might go into you landing the fish, right? You hook up with the tarpon, but how, when you're using the, the smaller leader, you would think the thicker, the bigger the leader, the easier it will be for you to get for the fish sure. better on the fish. But you're using, you have a technique you use where, talk about that. How, when you hook up in a tarpon, how do you get that fish in fast? Most people have no idea how to pull hard. If a guy tells an angler, pull harder, what do they do? They lift the rod higher. Oh, they lift, yeah. And they lean back. Right. All that does is bend the weakest part of the rod. Mm. That's the casting part. If you take a look at a fly rod, it's got big muscles like our body. And we have to match our big muscles of our body to the big muscles of the fly rod. Once you start pulling on a big fish, if you start bending your elbows with a higher rod tip, you have moved from the big muscles of your ass, mm. your back. Yeah. And if you pull on a big fish with relatively straight arms and you lean back with your shoulders and lift with your legs, that's the big muscles of your body. Once you start to bend the rod, now the bicep is exposed. All the pressure goes to the bicep. Now you're trying to fight a fish with the weakest part of your body. And the weakest part of the rod, because you now you have a higher rod tip and you're bending the rod tip. There's no pressure on that fish. So if you keep the rod relatively straight, you're pulling with the butt section of the rod. That's the mm. meaty part. Yeah. When you keep that rod relatively straight and you hang on to your fly rod and you lean back and, and lift with your yeah. legs, you're going to catch a 100-pound fish in 10, 15 minutes. By relatively straight, you mean just not totally straight on, but just a little bit at an angle. It's a little bend. Just enough to be in the handle and it's yeah. here. Because if it's totally straight and the fish, you know, um, jerks its head, you're going to pop them off. You need to have a little bit of bend with, with a slightly bending of the elbows. So I give, I extend my elbows and then pull back a little bit, but only minimally because if I pull back too far now, I'm using my biceps again. Yep. Gotcha. So that's it. And that's similar to the, the billfish stuff that, uh, right. The, the, I, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, there's been a couple people that have talked about that. Literally it's straight on and you're just pulling in, right? Look, you could have 10 people. Let's just say we have five fly rods and one has 16 pound test, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60. And they're all mounted to scales at the end of that, that butt section. And you stand back and you have everybody just, just pull as hard as they know how to, how to pull. In a fish fighting scenario, not locking the, the reel up and, and walking backwards with a straight rod. Actually fighting a fish in that sense. How do you fight the fish and you pull as hard as you can? I promise you, not one will ever pull over 20 pounds. Hmm. But nobody ever really puts scales on the end of their butt sections to understand what does 
I'm pulling hard. What does that mean? Do you know what five pounds is? 10, 12? Nobody's ever done that. People don't study how to fight big fish. But I've kind of refined an art to, to understand how to do this. So if you take a pulley, like in a West Marine, you get a pulley that just rotates. Mount it to the underside of your table. And you have, say, if you want to learn how to tarpon fish, you take the butt section through that pulley and tie it to a 12-pound barbell. And I do this in seminars. I'll hold the end of the fly line and I'll say, okay, I'm your fish. Pull on me like you're fighting a 100-pound fish. And they'll bend their rod and stand back and they're, they're pulling like a mofo, right? I say, what do you think you're pulling? And they all say, 20, 25. And that, that 12 pound barbell is connected to that butt section. Now let go of the fly line. I said, okay, pick that barbell up. They came and come close to budging. Oh, wow. Because they don't understand how to pull. And that's where people can really learn. Everybody says, God, I fought that fish for an hour and a half. I just couldn't get him because they're just not doing it right. And the guides, to tell you the truth, a lot of guides don't even know. Roy, so what's too long on fighting? What's a normal, a big fish, how fast should you be able to get that in if you do it? If you fight a fish for more than 45 minutes, there's a good chance that fish is going to die because it'll have a lot of lactic acid. You let it go. Now, now you know, it's exposed to sharks. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody, you know, if I were actually guiding, and I used to tell this to my son, you have... 15 minutes to catch this tarpon. If you can't catch that fish in 15 minutes, even if it's a hundred pound fish, I get to finish it <laughs> 15 or 20 minutes. If, yeah. if, he's, if I don't have my hands on that fish's face, you got to give me the rod. Yeah. That's how I taught Nikki how to fish. That's and how to good. Fish. That's good. But guides, I don't see any guides saying, okay, we're going to hook this, this fly up to this boga grip and you're going to stand back and pull. Yeah before they even go tarpon fishing. That's why people, you know, they're out there catching fish, but boy, they, they struggle in, in finding success in it. Exactly. That's it. No, this is, this is awesome. I, I'm curious. I want to go back to the sports just really quick here. So you mentioned baseball early on. You talk about golf. What were, did you kind of play, do every sport or were there some top sports? Yeah, I was a quarterback in the, on the football team. Okay. In uh, defensive halfback, we went to state. Uh, we went to state two out of our four years in high school. And in baseball, we went to state. I was a pitcher and a third baseman. Okay. Um, yeah. Baseball, you got golf. I, I raced bicycles, bicycles, but like, Olympics. uh, like road bikes, like road bikes. Yeah. I raced road bikes for a year. Um, yep. so I've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. You've done a lot, of, but, but fishing and, uh, fishing. Well, the great thing about fishing is, is that you can do it till your old age, right? Yeah, you can play golf your whole age, but oh, I guess golf I'm, too. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, the most exciting thing I've ever done. I can't say that. Come on, I used to ski at 90 miles an hour. Exactly. In my life today, the most exciting thing I do is call big bull elk in, in harvest right. with, with a bow and arrow. I'm glad you said that. Can you give us that uh, elk call? Yeah, let's hear that. I had really a great mentor teaching me how, how to talk to animals and learn how to bow hunt uh, elk. And like we speak with to tarpon with feathers, yeah. right? Talking. Yeah. Now we speak to them. We don't really speak to them with worm flies because they just see it and bite it. But with feathers, we used to bump and strip and slide. I'm telling that fish, 
here I am, you need to bite me. Yeah. And with elk calling, you need to convince that bull that you are a female and he wants to extend his herd. You know, uh, that time of year, they get fired up a big bull bugle. You can challenge a big bull. If you're like a, like a satellite bull coming in to steal some of his cows. So there's a couple aspects of talking to bulls, you know, with the bugle, bull bugle or cow calls. But the most effective for me are cow calls, you know, because who doesn't want a new girlfriend, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're an animal. That's right. But, so you're going to do this call and what are you yeah. going to be telling that bull? So I'm going to tell this bull, here I am at first, and then I'll change that to like, I really want you to come over here. Oh, wow. Okay. So here's, here I am. Oh yeah. That it's not right yet, but it's close. Yeah. Okay. Here it goes. So now I'm going to whine a little bit. Okay. I want you to come over here. Gotcha. That's a little bit more demanding. That's it. Like you need to come here. And here's here's it just like I'm just here, okay? Yeah. That is cool. Then you can make a wine, you know, you start you start moving, you know. Yeah. Cool, right? Amazing. How is that thing working? Is it so it's on the bottom of your it's a reed. It's a reed that you push up against the upper part of your of your mouth. That's cool. Uh, the roof of your mouth. And yeah. then if you press hard with your tongue is a higher pitch. Yeah. And if you let up a little bit, it's a little bit lower, and then you can, you know, wow, gurgle your throat and, and make it a little bit raspy. And then the big bugle, I don't have a bugle too, but oh but, yeah, but a big bugle is like this. Something like that. It's a little bit yeah. better with the tube, you know. Yeah, yeah. But gotcha. that's more like in your face, or it might even be a locator bugle. Like who, who who's out there? And then the answer, then you sneak into them as close as you can, and you start cow calling. Wow. And you're, and that's the great thing about elk is that I've rifle hunted. I've had elk really close to me before and a herd, I've had herds move by me. And that's the amazing thing about elk is they're such a gigantic animal. Literally in some states are the biggest mammal in the state. Right. And, and that animal to have it that close to you, I, and I can't even imagine when you're talking to it. Now you're actually talking to it and you're bringing it in. Oh, they're coming through the woods, crashing trees and stuff and, and blowing smoke. Um, you know, just absolutely like they want to kill something. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're another bull making bull bugles, they're coming in to steal your cows. Right. Or if you make a bugle, like it's a little younger bull, not quite big and raspy. Mm. And like, like I want to, you know, yep. that might scare bulls and they'll just take their herd and run away. Oh, right. If I, if I'm a big bull and I've got 30 cows yeah, and another big bull comes, Sometimes you got to challenge that big bull because he wants to steal your cow. So, and then you get the, the clashing of the dinosaurs. Dang. That's uh, great. A lot of times, if you make too big of a noise, 
they'll just take their cows and go over the hillside. But if you're a younger bull and you get really close, he'll come over and just like try to try to beat you up and, and kick you out. Yeah, that's right. So you have, the, you know, this is obviously a big passion for you. So if you look out the next 10 years or whatever, you could only choose between tarpon fishing or, uh, or hunting elk. Hunting elk all day long. Really? So you've already done the tarpon. You are, that's not, the- not even close. Because you're talking to a 750-pound mammal. Yeah. And he's talking to you. He's screaming at you. Yep. He wants to come and blow your mind. Even though you've got this ancient dinosaur basically behind you, this this fish. Look, I've, I, I can't tell you how many tarpon I've caught over the yeah. last 40 years. Yeah. I, I'll always love them. Well, why in the elk? Why did it take you so long to get into that? How did that, you know what I mean? Like, Well, I killed one when I was younger, like 20 years old with a rifle. And then I was just never exposed to it. And then Greg Norman, the golfer, um, we, he used to be a good friend of mine. Um, he invited me to come hunt his ranch in Colorado. And I killed my first elk with Greg. Mm, and, then after with the that, and then after that, I found uh, a really, really really good uh almost like an indian uh esque kind of a guide mm-hmm. that was one with the animal right and he taught me how to backpack in nice. you know uh, fr- eat freeze-dried food uh beef jerky and just live in the woods for like five or six days that's cool and and harvest animals and learn how to process them and and, and carry them out on your back and then he was he too really helped nikki but um, and then Nikki and I got into it big time and that's, oh my God, it's, it's that's it. pretty fiery. That's it. Nice. Well, I think, um, I think we've dug into, I'm glad we touched on elk because I've said this a lot about elk cutting. I haven't elk hunted in a while because our, our area isn't as great as it used to be. And I was rifle, but I feel like I just need to get into the bow hunting because it's, it's like the, it's the, the thing. I mean, everybody you talk to, it's always that really super passion thing with them. Yeah. Well, too, there's a lot of bow hunters that are, they look down at compound hunters, compound bow hunters. Oh, right. Like fit flip pallet. Yeah. Oh, so you're a, are you a, what type of bow are you? I'm a compound. Yeah. Normal. Yeah, Not a normal. crossbow, but a compound. Crossbows suck. Those are rifles. Yeah. 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 But a compound bow. Yeah. Gives you the where it locks. It yeah, locks yeah. And, yeah. Yep. But a lot of guys use recurves and traditional bows like yeah. flip. Yeah. Said, not until you start shooting with a recurve bow are you fly fishing for elk. Oh, is that do you do you think that's true? I do, but you know, if I had more animals to hunt on a daily basis if the if the forest was more prolific with numbers, I'd I'd be a, a traditional bow hunter. Right. But hell, I, I, we're public land hunters. Yeah. One year I, I went for two years without even getting a shot. I know. So if you had four opportunities a day over the course of a month and you have elk all around you all the time, I'd definitely be a, a trad bow hunter. Yep. There you go. All right, Andy. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I think we know what you're doing. You already mentioned the next year, you've got some good stuff. You're probably going to either be fishing or, or hunting. Oh, or, yeah. Uh... Hitting golf balls. <laughs> no, I'm riding my Ducati, you know? Yeah. You got enough things to keep you going. So you're, you're not, are you, you're not even, I mean, retirement is a word that you hear occasionally. It seems like that word is just an old word we don't think about anymore, but are I, you? I retired at 48. I'll be 70 this year and I've never worked harder in my life. No kidding. But what I did, what I did, I retired from doing things that I didn't want to be doing. Right. 
it's like Flip Pallet being a banker. He stopped the banking business because he wanted to be out there. All right. The what water. was yours at 48? What, what happened at 48? I was just busy doing broadcasting work, yeah. you know, and I just didn't want to be on the road that much. Yeah. yeah. And even then, you know, hosting uh, Sportsman's Journal, the fly fishing show, that was fun. Yeah. Amazing that's work. I mean, that's one of the great, I mean, you're talking one of the greatest shows of all time. That's, that was your, I mean, well, I don't, I don't know about that, but it was an opportunity. Well, what, what other ones are out there besides you got flip show? I mean, talk about just quickly, give us a, give us a rundown. What are the top? I, I think, I think, uh, sea hunter with Rob Fordyce is outstanding. Okay. And also, um, uh, silver Kings with Jared Raskob. Okay. It is unbelievable. Both of these guys are superstars as yeah. anglers and as TV hosts, and they got great film crews. Perfect. Those are the only two. All the other fishing shows in my book, I won't even watch. Right. I know there's so much out there. It's almost, especially nowadays, it's so overwhelming because it just seems like there's thousands of shows, and how do you even find you know, that one show? I mean, what's the difference between the shows now versus when there was only a Was it only a few back in the day, like Flip's time? Flip's was the best. Uh Jose Way Heavy, Spanish Fly was outrageous. Oh yeah. He was really good. Yep. When you do a TV show, you got to tell a story. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a who, what, when, where, why. Yep. And to have two guys sitting on a boat cackling about catching a fish one after the other, that is like de- dead in the water. Exactly. Yeah. And if you have a, you know, drones flying underwater cameras, why are we here? Uh, what makes these fish work yeah. and then actually go catch them and right. have cinematography, you know, to support it. That's a story. That, that's something that you want to watch. Yeah. In my, in my book. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the guy's BSing about fishing and stuff like that. I hear that a lot with ours too. Like, you know, the podcasting, people don't want to just hear people BSing about fishing, you know, necessarily yeah. some people, they want to hear, you know, some, something a little more, they want to get something deeper and something new and to have a connection to, to it all. Right. Yeah. You want to go left and right. You know, besides just down the middle. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> this is great. This is, uh, well, Andy, I think I'm going to let you go. Respect your time here. And um, we'll send everybody out to the Millhouse podcast if they want to connect with you and listen to your, you've guys you've got, how many episodes do you have going now there? We're about 65, I think. Yeah. There you but go. We've got some great, some great, great, great icons on there. Yeah. You know, in the saltwater world, we've got most of them. Awesome. But, but the road is uh, is long and deep, you know. Yeah, are you gonna? So you're not gonna. You have no uh, end inside of this podcast. No, that's perfect. That's what I like to hear. The podcast can go offshore. It can go to freshwater. Yeah, uh, it can go in so many different. Fishing is I big. I you know. know. And but our our intentions are to really chase down the really, really, really great storytellers that have big lives, and especially the older guys who are knocking on heaven's door right that's it well i appreciate you for doing uh, doing the good work the po- i'm a oh. podcast fedex so it's it's good to connect with you here and uh and doing this this actually the the zoom call here yeah. is i'm usually all audio so this is like one of the first ones one of the few that i've done like this other than the in person this has been a lot of fun for me yeah me too i very much enjoyed your conversation all right andy we'll catch you later all right david go buy yourself a bow so there you go. That was uh, that was some good stuff. Wetflyswing.com slash 330 if you want to check out uh, some of the links that we talked about. 
some of the videos and I'm hopeful we'll have something in there with uh, Andy skiing downhill going um, I guess he was downhill skiing so maybe not going off a jump but we'll check it out before we get out of here I want to give you a listener spotlight Damon Doyle Damon reached out a couple months ago and highlighted uh, some of the steelhead episodes that we've put together Uh, Damon, just want to say thanks for being a listener and I just want to give you a shout out here and a virtual fist bump and uh, and just say I appreciate you supporting this podcast and uh, and definitely please check back in with me. I'd love to uh, get on the get on the water. Hopefully that would be the goal someday. Get on the water. If you want to check out uh, check in with me, check out and check in with me, you can go to uh, just send me an email dave at wetflyswing.com. Or you can join, uh, head over the uh, the website and join the email list. Love, always love. We got a weekly uh, blog, little, little newsletter we do. Pretty much once a week we send out one, which is a summary of the podcast episodes we have going. Plus, there's always a couple of little bonuses I like to tuck in there. Um, and it's a good way to just stay connected. Um, and we love, we love that, that community over there. So that's what I got. We've got a bunch of uh, still some challenges, some giveaways going here. Um, Tons of stuff going on. The best way to stay in touch with it, like I said, is that email. So uh, I am going to get out of here and uh, and we're going to scroll off into the next episode. I hope you have a good night, good morning, or good evening. And I hope to see you on the river, on the water, or maybe online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.